If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 7. And we will be looking at verses 24 through 30. Uh, The worship team read Matthew's parallel to this uh, for a couple of the phrases that uh, we will work out of that passage into the message where Matthew's language is slightly more explicit uh, than, than Mark's as to Jesus' assessment of the response that he receives uh, from this Syrophoenician woman uh, who, who seeks him out while he's visiting uh, that region. So let's stand one more time and I'll read Mark 7, 24 to 30, and then remain standing for prayer. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately... A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Not complimentary for the woman. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet... Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we lift up our voices and ask you to attend your ear, O Lord, to understand the cry of our heart, even when we may not be able to articulate all that we are feeling and all that is overwhelming us and all that we are up against. Give careful attention to our words day by day as we call out to you and ask you to help us, save us from one thing or another, acknowledging you as our King and as our God. For it is unto you that we pray. Lord, in the morning you hear our voice in the morning we lay out our requests before you and then we watch and wait to see what you're going to do Lord we think of all the times that Pat and Sandy Nelson have watched and waited for the next scan for the next treatment And they are in such a place again this weekend 
waiting for the next scan early this next week. As we wait together with them, uh, we watch to see what you are going to do. Pray for your mercy and your grace to exercise itself. Lord, for Mary Clatt, who has recently come through a knee replacement surgery in advanced years, and we, she wages, watches and waits for you to heal her and draw her safely through the therapy at the other end of this event, that you would indeed just do that. And Lord, we know there are many people with many chronic conditions in our congregation who regularly pray and watch and wait. Some praying for loved ones far from you, and they pray morning by morning, and they watch, and they wait. Lord, we thank you that you are good, that you are not a God who has any evil desires at all. We are thankful that there is no evil intention that ever dwells in you. And that those who are boastful and arrogant will not be found with any favor in your eyes. Lord, you tell us that you hate those who do iniquity. That you will destroy those speaking falsehood. And Lord, we think of these people that run these schemes that Don mentioned, not just here, but all across the nation, countless churches, praying on the good intentions of your people, appealing to sanctified sentiment, supposedly to raise money for cancer patients and people in need, well, it all being simply greed. Oh, Lord, may you either grant these people repentance or may they come to see and realize and experience what it means that you hate such things. For they surely will. For you hate such things. And you will see to such people in your time, but with utter certainty. So, Lord, we pray as we gather in your name. May we find your blessing upon us, the blessing of your righteousness, O Lord. May you be a shield about us, a shield of your pleasure in your people about us, for we are the people of your steadfast love. We are the sheep of your pasture. We are those who are in Christ, and we gather together as such this day, and we thank you for the privilege of doing so in Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. Now, this last Thursday morning, after a fairly lengthy hiatus, our men's group was back together looking at uh, Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, now, a few of the guys were a little sleepy, and so they didn't make it. Uh, but we'll be there. We'll be there next Thursday, and it'll still be on to the on to the sixteenth chapter of Book Three, um, and it'll be a wonderful time. But having started to meet again, put me in mind of a comment. Uh, that was made in a class I was taking in seminary uh, 40-plus years ago. Um, The teacher was a philosophy professor named Stu Hackett. 
teaching a course in religious epistemology of all things. And Dr. Hackett had no sympathies at all with the system of theology known as Calvinism. And he mentioned that fact with, with some regularity in the class. He liked to joke uh, about it in this way. He referred to himself as a whiskey Calvinist. A whiskey Calvinist. Uh, because he believed in the P in tulip alone, the perseverance of the saints. So he took a, a fifth. Uh, that, was his, that was his joke. Uh, as a whiskey Calvinist. He didn't believe in total depravity. He didn't believe in unconditional election. He didn't believe in limited atonement. He didn't believe in irresistible grace. But, but he believed in the perseverance of the saints. And he would always get a good laugh out of that. And I remember all of that. However, the thing that I remember the most is given those attitudes, is how surprised I was. One day, after he made that little joke, he then said to this class, but I must confess, in all honesty, that Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion is without question the best theological book that I have ever read in my life. And if you want to know what I mean by that, he said, you're just going to have to read it. Now I had already read it, so I did know what he meant. I did know what he meant. Warm makes much of the majesty of God, makes much of the word of God, all things that, uh, that Stu Hackett would have been very, very dedicated toward. Now, why, why I mention that is that our text for this morning has that kind of quick shift in it that makes it tremendously memorable, that makes it surprising. As Jesus, in Matthew's version that the worship team read, Matthew 15, 25 and 26, the woman came and knelt down before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now that's a harsh response to a woman kneeling before you. And then she makes her response. And that's where the memorable moment comes. Where Jesus then responds to this same woman within seconds and says to her, Oh, woman, Great is your faith. Great is your faith. Jesus, the ultimate expert on faith. Oh, woman. Great is your faith. So, of course, the central question about this little paragraph is, So what was so great about her faith? What is it that Mark, by the Holy Spirit, is trying to tell us, teach us? For definitely this paragraph is is meant to urge us 
to have, to develop, to exercise a very similar faith. That's at the point at the end of the day that we learn what great faith looks like. Not by means of a technical definition, but by means of a story that has Jesus make a pronouncement about a key figure in that story. State our thesis for this message this way. We are told the story of one woman's great faith. That's all that happens in this paragraph. We're told the story about one woman's great faith. Now, the purpose clearly is that we learn what was great about it for the purpose of being able to emulate it. But none of that actually happens in the story. It's just the story about one woman's great faith. Now, I turned around and made this into a five-point sermon, and as will be obvious, you could have easily made it into the traditional three-pointer. Because the first point does already include in it points two and three, but I broke them out so as to give them the little extra emphasis that I wanted to. But so those of you, you know, who follow these things carefully, you know, you could, you don't come up to me and say, well, you know, pastor, those other two points were just extra circumstances. So you really should have put them sub points under the first. You would have an excellent point. That's why I answer you in advance. Um, So, as we have it in five, faith arises within specific circumstances, and it always does. It always does. Faith arises within specific circumstances. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. He couldn't escape notice. Now just as a doctrinal aside, please note there is a little piece here that definitely, definitely, definitely... Refers us to the genuine humanity of the Lord Jesus. If if Jesus, as God, wanted to go unnoticed into any place, I tell you for sure, no one would notice. But when Jesus is man, has a sincere desire to slip into the region of Tyre and Sidon to take a little break or to spend some time just with his disciples. We're not told why he wanted to do it, but we are told he went to Tyre and Sidon to to be unnoticed for some purpose. And he failed. He failed. He got noticed. And the whole story tumbles out of that failure. The whole story tumbles out of that failure. Because not only did somebody notice, but as we'll see, they talked about what they noticed. And they talked about what they noticed Enough, and in a certain context, where this particular woman heard them talking. And they shared enough information about what they knew that she knew exactly where to go to find Jesus. All of that spins out of the fact that Jesus failed to escape notice. 
circumstances are amazing once you start paying attention to them. They connect in a million ways all the time. I thought of this just this last Wednesday. Wednesday morning. Next month will mark 29 years that I've been going to the Among prayer meeting on Wednesday morning. 29 years. And yet, this last, this last Wednesday was the first time that I ever went to the Among prayer meeting in a Mongolian gear. It's a Mongolian gear. It's set up in Melanie and Hete's backyard. And so there we went. We went into Hete and Melanie's backyard, and we had the prayer meeting in this gear in the backyard. And uh, likely, if it works, next month you'll be able to see either that gear or a similar one, because we're hoping to sort of set it up in the foyer out there if it fits and everything works out uh, as part of an Among event that'll occur late uh, that same week. But in that gear on Wednesday was Craig Lawrence from our congregation. Well, many, many of you know Craig from talking about Among many. Well, over 30 years ago, he led a delegation to Mongolia to help at the behest of Bill Bright to launch the Jesus film in Mongolia, in the country of Mongolia. A number of people from this community went, uh, as I've mentioned before, from our own congregation, Shannon Cook, a very young man. He went on that trip. And, uh, and, they, and they launched that with a group of who's who of Mongolian political leaders and business leaders at a prominent location there in the capital city of of Ulaanbaatar, and at that launch, uh, very, very strong connections were made with political leaders and so forth, such that uh, they just swung the doors open uh, to showing that film all over the place. Well, also in that gear. Last Wednesday, of course, was in his backyard. So was Hete. And as Campus Crusade launched that, they were showing it along the street in Ulaanbaatar, as we've said before. And then Hete is a teenager visiting the big city of Ulaanbaatar from out of town. And walking along the street, he came across the showing of that film. And he stopped and he watched it. And at the close, they make an appeal to make a faith commitment to Jesus Christ, and he did. And he did. And there they were this Wednesday, Craig and Hete, sitting in Hete's backyard inside a gear, praying together. What a remarkable thing. What a remarkable circumstance. Lead a delegation in the early 1990s of businessmen. And in 2023, sit with one of the converts right here in the city of Sioux Falls, in his backyard, in a gear. Faith arises within specific circumstances. That's the way it works in everybody's life. Every one of your stories has circumstances around it. And those circumstances were integral to how God did what he did in your life. And we're part of the circumstances in other people's lives. Uh, which is where we turn. Secondly, faith arises through hearing. Faith arises through hearing. 
But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him. Now again, that's a circumstantial thing. She heard about him. He tried to come into town unnoticed. He failed. Somebody who probably had been to Galilee and seen a healing event noticed him, talked about him. And in the providence of God, this woman intersected with that person and heard, oh yeah, no, this guy, this guy casts out evil spirits. He helps deeply troubled people and he just turns them around. And she hears this because she has a little daughter at her house who falls plainly into that category. And so when she hears that, she knows exactly what to do. And she beelines for where she just found out Jesus is. Now, she was working off of a massively small amount of information, I guarantee you. She heard. She heard about him. Probably the person talking about him didn't know that much. But she heard just enough. Put me in mind a story I've told you long ago, so... Only the best of you will remember it. It's, uh, it's actually from a book. Um, one of my preacher heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones, his wife, Bethan, uh, wrote a little book about their 11 years at this Welsh village in South Wales, uh, Aberavon, South Wales. The little book she wrote was called Memories from the Sandfields, and largely it's simply a recounting of some remarkable conversions that took place during their years. And one of them uh, concerned a guy by the name of William Thomas. William Thomas was a drunk in the town. He sold fish door to door when he was sober enough to do so. His nickname was Staffordshire Bill. Um... Uh, which they gave him because he was the drunk of the region, one of the worst. Um, He had no friends. Um, His wife was stuck with him. And he told the story of sitting by himself, because he had no friends, on a Sunday afternoon in a drinking club in that town. And overhearing, at an adjacent table, a conversation which he pieced together three things. The name of the church that had Sunday evening services, which was called the Forward, and the fact that the preacher there said every Sunday night that nobody was beyond hope. And that, that one of them was going there on this Sunday night. That's all he, that's all he knew. So he, he decided he would go there. So he walked over to the church and then chickened out and went home. And then he went back the next week and he chickened out and he went home. And then he went back to the third week and he chickened out and went home. And then he went back the fourth week, and just as he chickened out and got ready to head home, a guy that knew him walked by and said, Bill, come on into church. You can sit with me. So he went in. He went in. And he was converted that night by the preaching of the gospel. 
It all, it all just stemmed from he, he just overheard forward. Anybody can be find hope. Nobody's hopeless. Sunday night. That's what he heard. And the Lord took those few things. Paul summarized it this way. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. That's how it works. Faith comes by hearing. But he certainly didn't have anybody present him the whole gospel. And he was sitting there in the church. He just heard snippets. You and I, we never know what the Lord is going to do with things that you say about Jesus. Ways that you recommend Jesus. Oh, you should share the whole gospel when you can. But often, it'll be less than that. And you never know what the Lord is going to do with something that you say. But what you do know is this. You're always better off to say something because faith does come by hearing. It comes by hearing. Thirdly, faith arises through the realization of desperate need. But immediately, the woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. That's just another circumstance, right? The reason she cared about what she heard was that she had a particular problem. A daughter. Evil. All out of whack. The great problem of her life. And she had heard that Jesus might help such a situation. And that's why she goes. Had she been healthy, wealthy, and wise without a problem in the world, overhearing what she heard would have meant absolutely nothing to her. Again, the Matthew parallel ESV has... Her daughter, as she describes it to Jesus, my daughter is severely oppressed. My daughter has a serious, serious, serious problem. That's why she went to him in the first place. That's the only reason she went. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says this by way of warning to the average American, to the average person in the world, to the average person in the Roman Empire. He told his disciples, you remember in Matthew, excuse me, Mark 10, we'll get to it a little bit later. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Why? Because they don't feel any need. They're fine. They're accomplished. They're on top. They hear this about Jesus. They could care less. So what? So what? David puts it really powerfully in Psalm 10. Psalm 10, 4 to 6. In the pride of his face, The wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there's no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, 
I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Now, he's not talking about theoretical atheism when he says, there is no God. He's talking about what the Puritans would describe as practical atheism. He goes through life without a thought of God. He never thinks about God. He doesn't worry about God. He goes through life the way Hollywood writers write all the scripts of the shows we watch. Godless. God is small, tiny, insignificant, not worth mentioning. That's where we live as a culture. You're fine without him. Nobody needs that kind of stuff. That's where this guy is. That's where this guy is. He paints a picture of the average person as being less, less insightful than my man, Mr. Billy Joel. My favorite little lyrics. I haven't quoted this one for a long time. The first part of it is pure Psalm 10, where Billy says, It's good to be a young man and to live the way you please. A young man is the king of every kingdom that he sees. Young men. Rich young men. Top of the world young men. But then, Billy goes beyond the guy in Psalm 10 who thinks he's never going to have a problem. Billy Joel then says, but there's an old and feeble man not far behind that's surely going to catch up with him somewhere along the line. But the guy in Psalm 10, he doesn't even think that far ahead. He doesn't even think that far ahead. He doesn't see it at all. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. What saves this woman is that she's not in a place to to think that way. She's already been moved. She's already been touched. She's already been laid flat. She already knows She's got overwhelming trouble. And she's she's interested when she hears about Jesus. She's interested. Fourthly, faith arises in spite of obstacles. The obstacle is Jesus' words. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, verse 26. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, Jesus says that to her very, very, very intentionally. He already knows, and he is already aware, and he is already stating out loud at times that his mission goes beyond Israel proper. If you remember when, uh, if you were in uh, Jim's Sunday school class in John, when he was passing through John chapter 10. So John 10, 14 to 16. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he says this, But I have sheep that are not of this fold. That is, I have sheep that are outside of the sheep of Israel. And it is necessary that I bring those. See, Jesus is very aware that the Abrahamic covenant said... And through the seed of Israel, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
So he already knows that he has come to reach Syrophoenician women. So why does he say to her what he says? And the answer is simply because it is true. It's true. I have come to save Israel. Now, he comes to save Israel ultimately by representing Israel. Paul refers to the average Christian as in Christ. Uh, doesn't matter how Gentile you are, your salvation is Jewish related. Because <laughs> you are in the Jewish Messiah. If you're saved at all, it's because you're in Christ. And Christ is the anointed Jewish Messiah. He's the king. The promised king. Hence Matthew opened his gospel. Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. So he says this to her as a challenge of sorts. It's not right to take the children's bed and throw it to the dogs. Now this is where she does the amazing thing. Because this is where the average American says, How dare you talk to me like that? I don't care who you are. I don't care what you have to offer. Nobody talks to me like that. Jesus, stupid racist. Racist. Get out. Get out of here. Get away from me. She doesn't go there. She doesn't even hint in that direction. What does she do? She says, well, true enough. But in my experience, the dogs often eat the food falls from the children's table. And without really even realizing what she has done, she has stated the Abrahamic covenant. Yes, but it's through the children that all those nations of the world will be blessed. Calvin made this comment. So it's a wonderful comment. Speaking on Matthew's comment that the worship team read, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Calvin wrote this. This goes into our fifth point. Faith rises to great heights. Faith rises to great heights. It's where we switched over and used Matthew's account. Jesus answered her, Great is your faith. Calvin. First he praises her faith, and then he declares that he will yield to her prayer for the sake of her faith. The greatness of her faith showed chiefly in that, with only a moderate glimmer of teaching to lead her, She not only recognized the genuine office of Christ and ascribed heavenly power to him, but kept steadily on through such hard obstacles. In short, she so seasoned her confidence with humility that she did not lay rash claim to anything. And yet did not shut herself off from the fountain of Christ's grace. She thinks the door is closed to her, not to drive her away, but rather to make her try to get in by faith through the cracks in the wood. In other words, She humbles herself and keeps on trusting. 
And now we're there. And now we're there. What's great about this woman's faith? No matter what obstacles it faces, she just humbles herself and keeps on trusting. You just can't do better than that. She humbles herself, keeps on trusting. Remember how Peter put it, and then we'll go to the table. We regularly get responses like like this from the Lord, don't we? We ask for one thing, and maybe we get silence. Or maybe things that we are asking to be turned around simply get worse. Well, now what? This woman tells us, oh, now you humble yourself and keep on trusting. That's what you do. You just humble yourself and keep on trusting. Peter is famous for saying it this way in 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, at the proper time, He will exalt you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. This woman humbles herself under the mighty hand of Jesus. And then she just keeps on trusting. Even the children, even the children eat the crumbs that fall. From the children's, from the table. And Jesus says, that's an amazing answer. Oh, woman, great is your faith. And through this little story, Mark says to us, oh, men and women, who are followers of Jesus Christ, go and do likewise. Go and be likewise. Go and trust likewise. What Paul asks at the Lord's table, after he goes beyond the initial Announcement, you remember, and we always go and fence the table here. I don't want to build the fence very high off of this, other than to say, this is the kind of thing that we ought to ask ourselves every time we come to the table. 1 Corinthians 11.28 Let a man, in the generic sense, man or a woman, the anthropos, let a man... Test himself. Let him examine himself. For what? Reality of faith. As Calvin put it, faith and repentance. But all he means by that is genuine faith. Uh, the 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 only thing that you have to have to come to the Lord's table is genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's an there's You've got to be careful about that because there's only a number of ways that you're given insight into how you know whether you have genuine faith. Uh, but after a, after a story like this, you see, the question is, so do we have a tendency to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and keep on trusting? Is that us? We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and then we just keep on, keep on trusting. It's a good thing to ask yourselves. But the only thing to ask yourself as you come to the table is, am I trusting Christ as my Savior? 
Do I hope to walk in the light as he is in the light with the understanding that then the blood of Jesus, his son, will cleanse me from all sin? If that's who you are and that's what you want, then the table is yours and and you should come. But as I warn you, if if you're saying this, no, no, you just need to know, Pastor, if Jesus ever talked to me that way, that would be the end of our relationship. Well, I'm just here to give you the bad news that you don't have any relationship with him if that's how you think about him. Because to know him is to know differently. To know him is to respond to him something like she did. At least know you should. And strive to do so. And if that's who you are and that's what you're doing, then again, the table is yours. And it'll always be done imperfectly. So men come, let me reread those familiar words. 1 Corinthians 11.23 For I received from the Lord that which I have given to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this for my remembrance. Likewise also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Men would stand and let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the bread. Father, we thank you for your great promise, for your great assurance that you did not spare your own son but delivered him up for us all, delivered him up to have his body broken on the cross for us. And how will you not also freely with him give us all things, faith and perseverance and sanctification and ultimately glorification. Lord, we trust In Christ, to these ends, in Jesus' name, amen.